This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome Dr. Diana Korovar to the show. Dr. Diana is from Australia, and I came across her because I actually had picked up her book in my local bookstore called Mindfulness for Moms and Dads, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Dr. Diana is a reproductive psychiatrist, and she's here to talk to us today about mindfulness, the neuroscience of mindfulness, how mindfulness can help support us in raising our littles and regulating ourselves and our mummy rage and how it can help to model emotion regulation and all kinds of positive things for our children. I was so appreciative that Dr. Diana took the time to sit down with us, and there's so much insight offered in today's conversation. So get ready. We're going to dive on in. Hey, Mama, Erica here. Popping in to let you know that Dr. Asherina Reem, aka Psyched Mummy and I, are going to be re-hosting and offering our Mummy Rage Seminar live. It was an absolute blowout success last time we hosted this webinar, and we've had rave reviews and feedback, lots of demand for another live hosting of this webinar. So we've heard you, and we are going to offer it on January 25th, that's a Monday, at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, if you can't make the live event, you can purchase a ticket, and I know momming gets hectic. You can have access to the live playback after we host the live event. So show up live or watch the playback, whichever you prefer, but it will be available to you. In this webinar, we go through understanding postpartum rage, learning to identify the true needs underneath the anger and rage, what's really going on, and practical strategies for in the moment. We also discuss ways that you can repair with both your child and your partner or yourself after you've lost your cool, and ways to practice self-compassion so that you can not fall into that spiral of mommy shame and guilt that we feel once we've reacted in a way that we don't feel super proud of. All of this is going to be happening on January 25th. It's a Monday, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can learn more at happyasamother.co slash mummy rage. That's happyasamother.co slash mummy rage. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Welcome, Dr. Diana, to the podcast. I'm so excited that you could join us all the way from Australia. And I say that as if it's a small place. Where in Australia are you located? Down in the southeast in Melbourne. Okay. I know we've been back and forth trying to schedule this interview. So I appreciate your flexibility in working with us. And I have to say, you might be the first or second podcast interviewee who I have not found on Instagram, but I found you (laughs) thumbing through my local bookstore. I have your book here and it is Mindfulness for Moms and Dads. And you are a perinatal, so reproductive psychiatrist is what they're called here in uh, North America. And I, just absolutely fell in love with you through your book. And I reached out to you via email and here we are. So I feel so fortunate that you took the time to join us today. Thank you very much for those kind words. I love to open up interviews with story and learning a little bit about your story in terms of how you came to specialize in perinatal psychiatry. Fascinating field. So I started my working life off in what we call general practice, you know, general medicine as a local doctor, really, I suppose, finding out after a few years, I had young children myself, so I had a sense of what family was about and I enjoyed spending time talking with people and helping them make sense of what might be difficult in their lives. So I found my way into psychiatry, um, did that training, which was pretty 
dominated here in Australia by a biological model, you know, make an illness diagnosis, plan a management, which often revolved around pharmacological treatments. So that was fine. And I did, you know, the requisite psychological sort of components of that training. But actually, prior to doing psychiatry, I did a number of years of a training in geriatric medicine. That's coming mm-hmm. back to me now. And mm-hmm. again, what struck me was working with families where something difficult is going on. So, you know, you have perhaps the elderly person who's dying or is in chronic pain. But what was most fascinating for me was the family dynamics around that. And just, I suppose, now I can see in hindsight It was possible to uncover a certain wisdom that these families had. They weren't often accessing it at the time. But I sort of learned that if I stood back and just facilitated, just tried to sort of help them view what was going on from a different position, then their whole experience of these difficult things could be very different and, and Mm. in fact, could be growth. So when I finished my psychiatry training at that stage, I had three young children I headed straight out into private practice because that was the most flexible. It was what I could work with. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be asked to cover for a perinatal psychiatrist. In that hospital, there was an acute perinatal ward, which was amazing. You know, women would come acutely distressed and unwell, sometimes with psychosis and their young infants. It was an extraordinary experience. And Mm -hmm. around that time, I was also totally intrigued by the neuroscience of emotion and mindfulness. And so I, you know, got a lot of training as teacher training for mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And I just found that the most interesting part of my work came in, in helping people learn how to really engage very deeply with the practical application of what we know from the neuroscience. So, mm-hmm. And then it's gone on from there, really, then training in trauma, trauma, which, you know, might big T trauma lead to PTSD, but really little t trauma is what right. we all experience um, in life, what we've all sort of the legacy, really, of growing up in a very, you know, complicated world. That, again, is further added to just the interest of the work that I do. And, you know, I think it's benefited me as a person too and how I understand my own life, what's happened and why I'm doing what I'm doing. I feel very fortunate that I've stumbled into this career. It's changed me as a person, I've no doubt. I would say one of the most attractive things about mindfulness or what has pulled me in the most is all of this neuroscience research that has come out that has talked about the benefits of mindfulness, sorry, for everything, right? For healing trauma and and for its work in trauma, for regulating our emotion, for soothing our inner critic and leaning into self-compassion. So can we unpack a little bit, practically speaking, and this is one of the reasons why I fell in love with your book is it is so tangible and practical and you've got it broken down in really digestible ways in terms of how we can practically apply mindfulness. Because when I say mindfulness, I feel like it's such a buzzword that many people kind of picture 45 minutes of meditation. And as a busy mom with three young kids, you can imagine, or my audience um, listening to the podcast, momming and pushing the stroller while they're trying to get their little dose of a podcast in, really not seeing how the traditional practice of mindfulness is super applicable or helpful to them. So can we unpack a little bit the idea of mindfulness, what it is, and then that traditional versus more practical, as you call it. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Erica. So I think many people, whether they're professional or professional in the field of trying to help people with mindfulness, or whether they're, you know, your average person trying to absorb information and because there's so much out there about the science of the development of a child and the science of our emotions and the science of mindfulness and you know, it's pretty impressive, you know, essentially, Mm -hmm. if you actually go to, there's a a tremendous program in Australia, ABC government sort of program called Catalyst. And I think it was in 2019, they did an amazing show on, you know, the eight-week programs, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And an eight-week program, if you've got you know, a good teacher, you do the practices, the brain changes in very predictable ways. Yeah, like literally literally your brain changes. Like it is mind-boggling. Love the power of mindfulness. 
Exactly. So the frontal part of our brain, the frontal lobes, you know, the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for what we call executive functions, which is the capacity to be steady, to have insight, to ride the wave of strong emotions, to make, to step out of little pictures and have a big sense of what might be underlying what's happening. That part of the brain grows in thickness over that eight-week period. The other part of the brain, you know, I'm dumbing this down a little bit because the yeah, brain is no, very complicated. Amazing. It's amazing. But the amygdala right down in the primitive limbic system, the emotion part of the brain, which is the part responsible for this really hair trigger fight and flight response, this cortisol, it sort of precipitates the sort of the release of cortisol. So that stress hair trigger threat response, really, that part of the brain shrinks and gets smaller, you know, in a very helpful way. So that's eight weeks. So, okay. That's the exciting neuroscience. Yeah, we and need to say that like, yeah, what you're saying is, so we're here today like to address mindfulness for mummy rage, right? And you're talking about that hair trigger response, that really yeah. reactive response after eight weeks of proper mindfulness practice, that part of that really reactive response starts to shrink in our brain and become less reactive through the use of mindfulness. Exactly. Powerful. So then the challenge is, how in the everyday life, as you say, with mums just and dads for that matter, because we really can't lose sight of, you know, mm-hmm. the stresses and strains that, that fathers have these days. How do we keep that alive? Because what happens to all of us, and I, you know, I figure I've got a pretty strong mindfulness practice of my own, and I also, you know, have a quorum of other sort of people in my field who are as passionate as I am. And it's actually really, really reassuring to hear them struggle as well with this whole experience of how do we keep mindfulness alive in our life and and what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if we're not careful, very quickly, mindfulness can be something that you, you want to sort of retreat to in an aim to try and get calm or something. And it becomes something that we're hoping to have an expectation that we're going to feel better with, which is often not the case. So Mm. we've got to understand also really, you know, the very ancient practices from which we draw this Western model of mindfulness, the traditional practices, say, in Buddhist sort of cultures, meditation was never intended as a means to an end. It was something important on its own. It was always as a way to work skillfully with the mind so that in our own lives, we can bring wisdom, we can observe the behavior of our mind because left unchecked, the behavior of our mind is unfortunately driven by this threat, very primitive threat response. So I think it's really helpful to have a very good working model of what it means to have mindfulness in our lives. And it's rich and it's varied because we've got lots of breakout sciences now which can help us find new and innovative ways to weave this into our lives, particularly around relationships and difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. That's a big, long answer. Yeah. When I think about mindfulness, and I know it's got many forms, when I think about mindfulness, I think about the ability to take ourselves off of autopilot and and how you describe as mind-wandering, which I'd love for us to talk about in a little bit, into the present moment. The practice of being able to pull yourself from being divided into two places into one place. And whether that's in an attempt to notice what's going on in our body and regulate ourselves, or whether that's in an attempt to have a more formal practice where we're just noting and being mindful of the things that are coming up in that time. It's the ability to exercise, I want to say it's sort of control over our mind, but it's not even that. It's a noticing of what's coming up, right? It's not even necessarily a control as much as it is a awareness, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. And you, you're absolutely right. And it's, that's actually discrete neural circuitry, this awareness. So we can be listening to something and we can be aware that we're listening. We can be in the grip of a, a rage attack and we can have awareness of that. And this is separate circuitry that's involved with monitoring, observing. And this is part of what we're building with mindfulness. So mindfulness can be done anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. And it's this observing and watching the judging, getting hauled into, you know, the busy part of the left frontal lobe that has us putting a storyline and getting us connected because we're caught up in all of the inner processes of trying to problem solve. 
It reminds me of a question. So I was doing a Q&A in my mentorship program. I think it was sometime last week. And there was this question coming up about mommy rage because we talk a lot about this reactive overwhelm and, you know, to the point where we're very like irritated and on edge as, Mm -hmm. as moms. And this is something we spend a lot of time on. And a question came in about how, you know, when I'm in these raging moments, it seems as though I see red and I I really have a hard time calming myself. And we went through a bunch of different things about sort of CBT and different approaches. But one of the ways that you help us understand this in the book is when our sort of, I think it's our frontal cortex goes offline in these reactive moments. Can you help us understand what's kind of happening in our brain in these really fight or flight moments when our amygdala or reactive brain takes over? Yeah, and I think what you're describing there, we would now know, we would understand more from what we understand about trauma, the neuroscience of trauma, really. Hmm. We understand that 90% of what's going on in the brain is beneath conscious awareness. So these emotions arise, they arise deep in the limbic system, they come out of nowhere, it's a very microseconds, these physiological changes in the brain come and we're cut off essentially from mm. all of these lovely executive function skills. So, you know, creativity, capacity to be present in the moment, to observe what's going on, to problem solve well, to have some wisdom, to be able to be kind to ourselves about it. That's all sort of unavailable to us. And again, a lot of this is coming also from implicit memory. That means we're not aware of all of the processes that are going on beneath, the complexity of these processes that are going on beneath conscious awareness. Let's just say that we have a young mum who's been struggling, perhaps a couple of children. She managed really quite well with her first and got enough rest and got enough help. But second time around, she's more exhausted. Novelty of mothering is well and truly worn off. She's had a series of explosions of difficult things that have happened. Mm -hmm. Um, She's starting to feel really not very good as a mum. You know, these are Mm -hmm. experiences that she finds very difficult to talk to about to anybody else because she's not very proud. She sort of thinks a lot of her friends seem to be managing so much better than she does. Mm -hmm. So what happens according to the neuroscience of trauma when any emotion gets activated? It gets activated. Emotion really is a combination of muscle tone and of muscle firing, breath but it also comes with meaning. So when this young mum next time ends up irritable and losing it, in fact, you know, that slope down into losing it gets more and more precipitous because even though she may not be aware of it, her body's starting to hold tension. There's a sense of just here we go and I can't stop this descent because what's going on underneath is this cascade of changes And at the core of it is something about meaning, about, you know, here I am doing it again, what a lousy mum I am. And this is all pretty much beneath awareness. So the cognitive, like the CBT of that in my mind, like I'm coding it in all sorts of different forms of therapy here as I'm hearing you talk, is that there's like a negative core belief that's operating underneath that. Is that what I'm hearing? So like the belief that like I'm flawed in some way is now kind of in the background, if you think about the subconscious mind being like kind of the operator at the machine, right? Just kind of in the background saying, oh, here we go again. And and sort of those confirming biases, like, see, look, I told you this was going to happen again, or you're not a good mom. And these, these scripts that play in our mind about ourselves, right? Totally. And so what we also know, which is really important to understand now, so out of the science of trauma, you know, which started really with, you know, incredible people like Francine Shapiro, who sort of pioneered EMDR, which is just an extraordinary intervention. Mm -hmm. But we know that there's what we call complex developmental trauma, which sounds terrible, but it's basically the trauma of just growing up as a child and adolescent and a young adult in our world. So virtually everyone has their own experience of that. Now, what that means is We don't head into motherhood, parenthood, a blank slate. We come conditioned by past experiences. And so, you know, there are certainly many people who grow up in households that are traumatizing. You know, there's a lot of arguing, there's a lot of instability, but there are also many people who struggle with parenthood who came from families where really it was just your average, relatively high-functioning family. Mm -hmm. And yet it's impossible to avoid experiences where 
particularly as a child and adolescent, because the brain, let's remember, doesn't fully, that brain, these neural fibers don't fully myelinate. We're not fully matured in the brain until, you know, mid to late 20s. So any experience being humiliated in the playground at school, feeling a little unsafe at home, parents are arguing, child in their egocentric sort of way thinks, you know, something terrible is going to happen, just these feelings. So what we know from trauma psychology is there's a few things that meanings, these are not necessarily even explicit in our mind, but I'm not safe, I'm not good enough, I am responsible. So what that means is when we head into our own experience of parenting or indeed any relationship of intimacy, of emotional intimacy, when things are difficult, well below conscious awareness, this threat system gets active and the meaning that comes when these emotions get activated, like shame, fear, anger, comes with something which is just accepted in the moment. Mm. You know, I am no good as a mum. Here's the evidence. What more evidence do you need? And interestingly enough, when these circuits get activated, they are laid down with their own memories. So for example, where as a, a parent, you know, 80% of the time we might feel we're doing a pretty good job and we actually then have access to all the times when we've done things well and when we've really loved the challenge. But when we're right in the midst of being highly reactive and very unhappy with how we're managing things, we actually have access, we remember more readily the bad times, the difficult times. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So... And, you know, that's this physiological component of, of emotion is taken advantage of in EMDR, where I'm not sure whether you're very familiar with it, Erica, but it, it's an extraordinary mm-hmm. training and it's tremendous. I personally believe everybody could benefit from some EMDR. I've been learning more about it and I'd like to specialize in like they have a perinatal specific training here for moms yeah. and birth trauma and stuff because it incorporates this physiological component and mindful component. And I've, I was taking a trauma training that just talked so much about just disarming your nervous system with it as well. One of the reasons to bring it up here is, so for those people who've not heard of it, it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And to just describe what happens is helpful because it helps us understand how our brains handle emotion Because we tend to get a bit preoccupied with what the thinking brain is doing, what we're telling ourselves in awareness or out of awareness. What we pay less attention to, which is getting a lot of research attention now, is the power of imagery. So in EMDR, a trauma history is taken, which really means a history of developmental experiences and major experiences in life and and how that's made someone feel. The actual intervention, though, is about deciding what to work on. So that may, for example, just say we had this young mum who was raging and feeling and getting really stuck with these cycles of reactivity. If it was, you know, deemed to be indicated how therapists might work with EMDR with that young woman would be to have her close her eyes, bring back a memory of an experience and ideally one of the hardest experiences you know maybe that might be a meltdown of a toddler in a in a supermarket where she loses it where she's aware of everybody looking at her and judging in the trauma history we would have looked at you know when else she encountered anger in her life perhaps it was a father who raged perhaps there were parents who had dysregulated sort of fight mm-hmm. that's just if we had to follow this chain where did it begin this sort of experience of getting highly dysregulated. So we just we just sort of know that that's somewhere in the background. Anyway, in the intervention, we ask the lady to close her eyes, bring back a memory. We've already talked about which memory. And then we get her to pay attention to body sensations. So, you know, there's a technical term for this and it's called interoception. It means the sensations that are coming from within the body So, you know, you can experiment with this yourself. For every emotion, there are sensations within the body, gut around the heart, the lungs, in the skeletal muscle. What we're doing, we activate this memory. We're bringing awareness into where that can be felt. Then the patient starts to open her eyes and then the therapist moves her fingers very, very quickly and asks the woman to follow those fingers as best she can with her eyes. And so in runs of 10 to 20 seconds, you know, you do that and you stop and close eyes. 
what's happening now and she sort of monitors what's going on in her body. So anyway, all sounds pretty bizarre, but what we understand about what is happening is if we can imagine that these circuits of reactivity, whether it's rage, whether it's shame, these sort of pits that we all fall in, it's a bit like they're rogue circuits. Hmm. So they're not connected. They're certainly not very well connected to the frontal lobe. They're not connected to the parts of the brain that have got to do with a broader narrative, putting things in context. And it's one of the reasons why we believe that traditional talking-based therapies are less effective, take a lot longer because Mm. we're not specifically opening up, inviting in the full waves of these emotions because what actually happens as a result of doing this, you know, in any one, one and a half hour sort of session of EMDR, there's less talking, there is more of this processing, bring back a memory and you'll find then that other memories open up. Oh, I remember when I was three and dad came home and he was in a very angry mood and mum was crying and da-da-da-da. And you don't have to talk about it. It's not solving it. But Mm -hmm. what we know the brain is doing, it's opening up lots of other circuits. And there is an integration going on. And integration, I suppose, is another concept in developmental Mm -hmm. psychology, which is really important. It's this integration of left and right brain, integration of primitive brain with frontal lobes. Mm -hmm. So there's this, you know, real-time rewiring happening. As busy moms, the last thing we need is more on our to-do list. It's hard enough to remember who needs what packed for school, when the next doctor's appointment is, and when to register for events, let alone remembering to call and cancel subscriptions that drain your finances every month. That's why Rocket Money is so great. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you notice something that you don't want, Rocket Money can help you cancel it with a few taps. They even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash momwell. That's rocketmoney.com slash momwell. Feeding the family is one of the most all-consuming parts of the invisible load. Meal planning, shopping, trying to balance nutrition, finding the time to actually cook with little ones needing your focus and attention can be so stressful. But Factor makes it easy. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals take the mental load off your plate, providing pre-prepared, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to select from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan plus veggie, and more. You can even choose from over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, including snacks and smoothies. With Factor, there's no prep and no mess. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. That means no cooking and no cleanup, which is great for busy moms. You can choose the schedule that works for you and your family. Choosing six to 18 meals per week and pausing or rescheduling your deliveries is quick and easy. Reclaim some time and reduce your mental load with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use the code momwell50 to get 50% off. That's code momwell50 at factormeals.com slash momwell50 to get 50% off. If your house is anything like mine, breakfast is the most frantic meal of the day. We all want to start the day off with a wholesome meal for our kids, but the time crunch makes it difficult. Magic Spoon helps relieve the morning rush with tasty cereals high in protein for a great start to the day. Magic Spoon offers a variety pack with four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And it has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs per serving. 
Each Magic Spoon cereal is made with wholesome ingredients and no artificial flavors or dyes. And since it's gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free, it's great for a variety of dietary needs. Go to magicspoon.com slash momwell to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code MOMWELL at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund you your money, no questions asked. Try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momwell and use the code momwell to save $5. It's really interesting. It brings up like a client case in my mind uh, that I've been working with. And she came in initially for like mommy rage and some anxiety. And we realize that in ragey moments, often memories of how her mom was were coming up. And now we're actually really down the rabbit hole of she realized it has come to acceptance about when we think about the four S's of a secure attachment, we think about safe, seen, secure, and soothed. And she's realizing that she really lacked being soothed and being seen and her upbringing, very, you know, middle-class, no trauma, big T trauma, you know, but really just filled with so much frustration and anger. And so now we're down the rabbit hole. She's like, when this came up, it was just like you said, this whole chain of all of these memories came up and she was writing them down and writing them down and writing them down and sort of reintegrating them back in a way that she was realizing I wasn't flawed in any of these moments. Like she put a new narrative to the story in those moments and looked back over them like, I can see in all of these situations that this was actually my mom's attempt to regulate herself or struggle to regulate herself. And that as a child, you know, all the way down the chain, none of these things were my fault. And so it was an interesting kind of line for us to go down in therapy, but really came from what you were saying, this meaning or this thing that was coming up for her in these raging moments. Well, I don't want to be like my mom. I feel like a lot of these things come up when we behave in a certain way, we've committed to ourselves like that we do not want to redo the things that our parents have done. There's this driving force And the way to help to heal those things is to, like you said, integrate them, explore them, put new meaning to them and reparent ourselves, which is sort of this buzzword right now, right? With some self-compassion in those areas. So it's really interesting. So a lot of these responses are, you would say, or this dysregulation is often tied to traumas or like things that we're attributing negative meaning to or like negative core beliefs to. Yeah, yes, it's not limited to family. It's just family of origin is obviously we are in some ways at our most vulnerable with family of origin and we continue to be really. Often, you know, it is extended family for young parents who provide sometimes either the most rich and, and helpful relationships or the most challenging. You know, coming back to neuroplasticity, you know, there's that statement which we're probably all familiar with, nerve cells that fire together, wire together. So unfortunately, you know, this is all provoked by the amygdala. The more we have meltdowns and either get angry or we mustn't forget, the other thing is to rigidly withdraw. And I think irritability is probably a much underrated emotion in our society because it grumbles away in the background. Brain is incredibly, it has a capacity to shift in milliseconds if we know what to do. So what I'm getting at here is, you know, with a mindfulness practice, which can be more or less formal, if we're recognizing irritability as an emotion and we can learn how to ground ourselves, you know, we can do this by actually just, you know, putting up a little bit of a chart and and writing a list for ourselves, right? At this point in time in my life, what are the great, what would I put down on my biggest issues with reactivity? So is it the five o'clock dinner time? Is it the having Mm -hmm. a conversation with my father time? So these are just times of reactivity. So if we imagine that it's at those times, it's likely that what's going to get triggered is this circuitry, which is, you know, triggered beneath conscious awareness. And I'll get dragged in talking in a certain way, thinking certain things. So if we can actually stand back a little bit like, you know, the 
real working version of mindfulness, just take a look at the patterns in these situations and then begin because a lot of it is repetitive. You know, we can predict a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. If you bring that awareness with you, you know, the other important aspect of circuits of emotion is that they involve breathing patterns, muscle patterns, so posture, facial expression, voice tone. Mm-hmm. So just, for example, going into an interaction, having connected with the breath. So instead of, you know, paying attention when the breath is just short, sharp, upper chest type breathing part of the threat response and just getting better at just slowing down the breathing, softening the belly, letting it be more diaphragmatic. So already you're out of thinking mode. You're really working with the body rather than allowing this default mode network, this thinking net go berserk. If you consider voice tone so you head into the situation so that you're already your inner voice tone and how you communicate with people so I often say to mums you know because you can't solve these things overnight you know there's often everybody's reactive with you Mm -hmm. you know partner children if you go in with a different posture with a different facial expression instead of getting caught up in the content of why someone's not eating their dinner or why husband hasn't put, you know, the the plates in the dishwasher or whatever. You can get a bit of distance, see what's happening, and you can use your body in so many ways to bring, to activate different emotions so that you're not getting hauled into this disconnected, rigid, irritable, well-rehearsed way of just, because a brain that is shut down is usually just totally focused on problem solving, on apportioning blame, you know, and right deep down inside, there's this awful feeling, here we go again, Mm -hmm. what I'm doing again, taking in very little information from the outside. I think there's a couple of things there that you mentioned that I think are so important and that I teach my clients is one, when you explain that these circuits that fire together, wire together, I think that a basic understanding of knowing that our brains, you know, over time and these patterns within our family are sort of what is at play here, that we aren't flawed and that there's a way to approach it differently, I think is a a first kind of entry level of understanding because when we are stuck in the pattern of thinking that we are flawed, there's this helpless feeling that we can't do it any differently, right? And then with that understanding comes this curiosity to explore and tune into our bodies. And one thing that I've come to learn over the last few years of my practice, you know, with clients and things is that we are taught at every corner to like distrust our bodies and disconnect from our bodies. Like diet culture teaches us not to honor our hunger. You know, we've been maybe taught not to show our emotions when we're sad. And we've been conditioned in many ways throughout life to disconnect from and and shut down from parts of ourselves and not be curious and not note them. So one of the things that's been extremely effective for me in helping to be more mindful, approach situations differently and regulate differently is even just noting and being curious. Once I started to understand my brain and, you know, my biology in a different way, I began to just note things out loud. Wow. Mommy is feeling really frustrated right now, even out loud to the kids. And it's also a heads up that they <laughs> go pick up your shoes. You know? <laughs> but I will do this where I'm like, oh, like mommy's brain just feels like it's rattling around right. with all the questions that are coming in Fantastic. right now. Right. Fantastic. And I really just the noting in itself is soothing for me because it's validating what's going on for myself. It's one of the chapters of your book, this uh, this idea of tuning in or attuning to yourself. And I think that in itself can be extremely powerful and is a form of that self-compassion piece, this validating our own experience because we've been taught to minimize and invalidate our own experiences our entire life pretty near, right? And, you know, these difficult emotions like sadness, fear, anger, you know, they set up this fight and flight response. They're very uncomfortable. It's very hard 
to be with those emotions. So, you know, they do end up cutting us off. So we can work very explicitly with that. You know, we can work with imagery. We can maybe do, you know, if you have some 10, 15 minutes to do a guided meditation, but sort of stop halfway through and bring back an image of something which has been very hard that you'd like to sort of work with. And literally all you're doing is bringing an image of that and you will feel it go through your body. You will feel everything start reacting. That's all that's important to do. Just get that activated and then go back to slowing down the breath, softening the facial expression, just some inner quiet words. You're then working, you're doing something very different with neuroplasticity there, actually helping these different nerve circuits. Like shift back and forth Correct. between the two. Mm-hmm. And I loved your reflection on, on how you speak with your children about emotion because, gosh, that's got to be one of the most important lessons really in the last sort of decade or so about helping children. Children have all these emotions, of course. And with mm-hmm. neuro neurons, you know, these this means that we are all like sponges. We all pick up on everyone else's emotion. But I had a lovely interaction with a mum a couple of years ago who had been working on mindfulness with me and she found breath was fantastic through the day. And she recounted, I think she had a little four-year-old child, a little daughter. And this, for my patient, was a very difficult day and she was getting angry and losing it. And she sort of sat down on the couch and said, oh, just like you, I feel so angry. There's just, I've got a lot of anger in me at the moment. I need to take a breath. And so a week later, her little child was sort of getting angry and, you know, incipient sort of tantrum and went and sat down and said, oh, I'm feeling very angry. I need to take a breath. (laughs) And, you know, this is actually what we understand. It's like that decades ago, that very influential psychologist, you know, Winnicott, who said the good enough mother, we it's important that we're not perfect mm-hmm. and we are modeling something. So for our children to see us angry, sad, unsure of ourselves is actually really important. Mm-hmm. And then to observe what we're doing and how we make sense of that and how we can reflect on it. Because really, let's face it, our children, we're preparing our children for the big wide world. If they've had a bad day at school and they feel not understood by their teacher and alienated from a friend, like it's going to be of minimal help, some help, but minimal help to them for us to go in and try and actually change the dynamics of what is going on. But if Mm -hmm. we can imagine encouraging that child to just talk, allowing them to feel frustrated and helping them put some names to those emotions, you know, name it to tame it is, you know, one of the sort of the concepts. If we name our emotions, it shifts the circuitry, it quietens down Mm -hmm. that sort of energy behind the emotions. And then just as you say, you start to actually get more access to being able to find a different meaning. Yeah, when you were describing the attunement chapter, automatically my mind was going to like attunement, like attuning to our child, because this is so much what, you know, parent educators and things teach is this attunement to our child. And then when I was reading it, I was like, really, it's about attuning to ourselves. And I was like, totally. hmm, yeah. I never put it in that perspective before. We do all of this, you know, learning how to connect with our child, learning how to tune into their needs, learning how to be perceptive of their cries. And yet these things inside of us are screaming out for attention and we don't know how to attune to our our own self and our own needs. And I think that that's what you learn more and more as your children grow older and mine uh, are are now all adults, uh, is that it becomes more important to watch the dance really that goes on in relationships, to watch how a child or someone else who's important in your life how their behavior, what they're saying, their facial expression, to just watch this sort of delicate little dance that goes on interpersonally, mm-hmm. to watch what's happening within you, to watch what what meaning am I giving to that? What do I feel inclined to open my mouth and say here? Slowing it all down and and then paying attention, you know, what can I notice about what I can see on this child's face? You know, if I had to put an emotion to it, what, what's actually happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing to say about practices, because if we go back to perhaps um, one of the other models of circuitry and emotion, there appear to be three major systems of emotion. So they are the threat system, which we're all pretty familiar with, you know, runs on cortisol, a stress hormone. 
The other system is the dopamine system, the striving, achieving pleasure system, but this is sort of hedonic pleasures, you know, and it's the dopamine system is what gets activated with a lot of substances of abuse. For example, it's a good feeling. But in fact, one of the other systems which is most, um, which we need to actually build specifically is the compassion system, or in other words, the soothe and connect system. So it's affiliative emotions. It works on oxytocin and endorphins, our own opiates sort of system. And there's pretty much nothing really in our natural life, that daily life, that activates that system unless, if you can imagine, just cuddling a baby or spending time with, you know, just a pet or in a lovely sort of interaction with a very close supportive friend, that's the sort of thing that will spontaneously activate this circuitry, soothe and Mm. connect circuitry. Mm -hmm. So we can use imagery, you know, we can use mountain meditations, we can use soothing rhythm breathing to activate that circuitry. And it's important to understand because I think compassion's it's sort of misunderstood as something a little bit weak and, you know, Oh, pat on the back, you've had a really hard day. And, mm-hmm. you know, in fact, if we look at the potential for what we have, really, given that life is very complicated, there's a lot about life which is very important, which is very hard. You know, look at the pandemic. What we need when we're thinking about living in that emotion system, which is the soothe and connect, we really need four factors we need, skills we need, attributes perhaps, courage, strength, wisdom and kindness. And I find it helpful. You know, if I'm reflecting on some some situation that I want to, I want to bring compassion in the broader sense. I want to sort of access this part of my system. I think to myself, what do I need here? Often it is kindness, but people will often think that self-compassion is about kindness and if I'm too kind to myself then you know I'll get slack and mm-hmm. I won't try Complacent. as hard and I won't. Mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. it's indulgent some way but it couldn't be further from the truth so then you know wisdom is important component this is where insight what's really going on here and it might be that what we need to do is find the courage and the strength to do what's needed to change a situation So, you know, that too can help inform our parenting, particularly as children grow older when they're managing difficult things in their lives. Just an understanding of that can help us sort of work out how as a parent we can help this child handle a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. You know, just this concept of there's a need for bravery here, isn't there? When you see her in the playground and she's deliberately turning away from you. And so we can sort of imagine how we can help this little child learn how to actually grow in stature and manage herself skillfully and soothe herself and calm herself, but also learn how to express herself more clearly and articulate her needs more clearly. I recently did a lesson on self-compassion in my Mother Up membership, and we were diving into it. And one of the things sort of in my research of it was learning how much it is a skill that we learn, right? And how our inner critic kind of forms by default throughout our life. And like you were talking with these sort of early negative experiences, which we all have, And if self-compassion isn't built in and woven in with intention, the inner critic becomes this default that we go to, right? So ways to to tie in that self-compassion is to say soothing statements to ourselves like we would say to our kids. And when we talk about this, the application of mindfulness and noting and soothing ourselves, taking time and being patterns that we build, we inevitably will encounter time where we lose it again, you know, it it will inevitably happen. And when we have those ruptures in our relationships or, you know, parenting relationships and things, how do we soothe ourselves and how do we repair the situation? And self-compassion is so critical for that. And with my boys, I'll even like, I'll own the situation with them and talk about how, you know, mommy was hungry. When I'm hungry, I get grumpy. Or mommy loves you when you're grumpy and when you're happy and when you're like just trying to counteract that negative critic that would say I'm bad or I'm flawed in some way, trying to instill in them this idea like it's okay to make mistakes. And it's interesting how, sorry, I'm going to go on a little tangent here for just a second. (laughs) Relevant, I think. 
is that I was sitting on the weekend with my son and it makes me think about how the critic is internalized and how this I'm doing something bad or I'm bad forms over time because he's got this game that he plays on his tablet, uh, a couple of different games. And the ads in the game that pop up are, Mm. I say inappropriate. They're not like inappropriate, like wildly inappropriate, but they're just like not my favorite things, you know, for him to encounter these ads that come up in the games. And so I've made a comment a couple of times, like, oh, those ads are just so silly. Like, why would they have those ads in this game? And I've noticed after that, when an ad would come up on the game, he started to kind of like cower away his his tablet from me as if to feel shame or feel like he was doing bad. And I was sitting with him. I saw him doing that. He was like kind of looking at me and checking and looking back down. And I stopped and I was just like, sweetheart, you are not bad. Nothing about what you're doing is bad. Mommy wasn't blaming you. I just want you to know it's not your fault. It's the tablet, it's the games and the advertisements, the the ones that play them. And sometimes mommy doesn't like them. That's not me, you know, saying anything negative about you. And how as these, like you said, egocentric children, he's internalized that in that moment as him being bad for what he's doing. So we had this like little beautiful moment of compassion and acknowledging and saying like, no. And even if you were doing something bad, mommy loves you regardless. Like, you know, like even if it's, Mm -hmm. even if you felt like you were, there's no need to hide anything. It's okay. Mommy's not upset with you, right? That's right. And and you're contributing actively. You're modeling something which is so powerful, which is we can talk about difficult things. You know, you're tuning and you're picking up on what could be the seeds of shame because shame, you know, we're a social being. Feeling not good enough, feeling inferior is actually, it's impossible to avoid it. But you're modeling just being able to sort of reflect and look back and be curious. And even in a different situation, even plan, you know, I wonder what we could do differently. It's a real problem, isn't it? So you're sharing that. You might even talk about an experience that you had. This is all really great stuff mm-hmm. because instead of just focusing in on the problem, what can we do about this? Can we get him onto some different games or can I forbid this sort of, if we've got our eye on just on growth, what can be understood about this? Because really, you know, our relationships are really the opportunity for incredible growth, not just for our children, but for ourselves. And mm-hmm. you know, this is the case with all emotionally intimate relationships. In fact, growth by definition doesn't occur in the comfort zone. So, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's with our partner or with someone else that we've had an interaction that's been difficult, by going back and reflecting like you're describing, wow, that was really tricky. You know, I'm trying to make sense of it. This is what happened for me at that time, or this is what I was thinking at that time. And you know, I wonder what you make of it. You know, this is fantastic mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And it's us modeling that. And then if we can extend that grace and compassion to ourselves when we are doing, you know, it, often we totally. can we can do it with our children and it's harder for ourselves. It makes me think about it. This is, I feel like the make it or break it question that I often get asked by moms and, and we can talk it out a little bit. But when we get in these moments where we're attributing meaning, right? We're in these moments when we're just really irritable or full of rage. What might be some of the practical applications of mindfulness in those moments when we're, we feel like we're about to lose our cool or we're kind of caught off guard? I think it's about grounding. It's about, you know, having this awareness. Here's this slippery slope. Here's this cliff edge in front of me. Mm-hmm. And so, imagine an internal voice. So, you know, it's, it's helpful to really learn to listen to the tone of our internal voice. So if we can bring explicitly, if we can imagine embodying a wise inner mentor who's mm-hmm. then saying, hey, slow it down, slow it down. The words just slowing the body, slowing the breath, slowing the mind. What we're doing is wanting to sort of just disconnect from this cascade of thoughts and this urge to open our mouths and yell or thump something on the table. Slowing the breath so that, you know, we're paying attention. So it's as if we're opening up space, really. So if we imagine there's all this reactivity happening within and around us, And we want to just open up some space. So physiology of breath is massive. Mm -hmm. Just by softening the belly, using the diaphragm, we can literally activate different circuits of emotion. And it's that sensitive that within a few seconds, 
by actually going to the breath and consciously sort of softening all the muscles around the face that are holding all of that tension that are being picked up by the child. Mummy's in a rage. So, of course, that sort of often worsens the situation anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's just a sense of just internally, it's okay, I can manage this. And then externally, just again, trying to imagine because emotions are, you know, this, this field of interpersonal neurobiology, we can impact on another person's brain. We're doing that all the time. So that if that mum was to then say, hey, this is difficult, isn't it? Let's just slow this down. It really doesn't matter what words you say, <laughs> mm-hmm. but then you can sort of play around with this. The mind is a great simulator. You can, if there are typical situations that occur, you can, at a quiet time, close your eyes, bring back a memory of that and imagine, imagine what it looks like to see this little child melting down, to see yourself. So that's a way of just looking at what's going on and then experimenting with things. So instead of just towering above this kid and hands on hips and you just walk over to the couch and sit down and, whoa, this is difficult. You know, you're really doing things which are getting out of that system of emotion, which Mm -hmm. is highly reactive. I need to take a minute. I'm on a bit of a bad track here. (laughs) You know, let's just Let's just slow things down. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Finding that pause and doing things like I'll talk about it. And I, I teach a mummy rage webinar through my website. And we talk about disarming the armor of like the nervous system, right? So doing things like sitting cross-legged on the floor, like telling your body and your biology, like it's okay yeah. to relax. Let's take a breath. And I'll do a lot of naming things for my kids. Like, oh, it's looking like we're getting tired now attuning to what's happening behind the actual behavior. Okay, many thoughts at the same time here. I know that there are many things that are underneath when you think of the iceberg of postpartum rage or mommy rage. Underneath that iceberg are things like shame and overwhelm, but also potentially postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression. So at what point do you think if we're not finding this pause or we're having Mm, such a difficult time regulating at what point do we seek our doctor or you're also a prescriber, I understand, right? Mm-hmm. So at what point do we start to think about incorporating a medication as a part of this practice to help us in regulating? So I think of medication as really an assistant to the frontal lobes. The signs would be these periods of rage, do they feel isolated? Can you recover quickly? Are you capable of feeling connected, feeling happiness, getting involved in a task and and really engaging and finding it rewarding? So we call that the hedonic capacity, your capacity to get pleasure from life. I get that as a busy, tired parent, that's going to all be attenuated anyway. But generally, people are able to say, yeah, we had a lovely moment of connection or I sat next to my husband and watched a movie last night and it was so lovely. So for me, as a psychiatrist, that would suggest that there's probably not a huge biological depression there. It's actually more pervasive and there's a sense of just, well, irritability is there all the time and I can't concentrate. You know, cognitive capacity is a really good marker of just how significant anxiety or depression are. You know, whether it's possible to sort of, you know, remember things from day to day, whether it's possible to concentrate on watching a movie or a series, or whether the brain is so distracted and multitasking that, you know, you're really not at all able to access these executive functions. And when anxieties, you can see that a person is really trying very hard to implement other strategies. And that's where often, you know, the use of medication like an SSRI, antidepressant for anxiety or depression, can transform things, but temporarily. You know, it's not in order to learn the skills, right? In order to give a little bit of breathing space to learn the skills and apply them, to be able to have that influence and that, again, not control, but like awareness and curiosity and build up those skills. And sometimes I find with clients, especially when we're talking postpartum depression or anxiety in those early, like trying all the things, know a lot of the things that they should be doing, have tried a lot of the lifestyle changes and it's just not moving the needle in terms of distress, always kind of bubbling under the surface. Then there's usually a strong recommendation for, for trying a medication that is one of the tools in our toolbox of skills that we're learning. And like you said, can be for that temporary period of time to allow that space for us to have that little breath or gap to have that reflectiveness and that curiosity to explore these patterns of behavior a little bit more. That's right. I think the caveat 
I would sort of have is let's just say that we've got a family where the difficulties are going well beyond. The parenting is just what comes into view because it's the most pressing, urgent demand. But, you know, what's happening perhaps is there are more systemic issues. There's instability in a marriage. There's warring with extended family or whatever. And then I try and really make sure people know what to expect from medication. So a medication will often reduce the intensity of Mm -hmm. emotions, all emotions across the board, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So sometimes with antidepressants, you know, the capacity to just feel sadness, cry in a sad film or whatever is diminished. The capacity Mm -hmm. for joy is sometimes diminished. So then, you know, there's also a need, well, alongside this, if we have actually got someone with, you know, significant anxiety or depression, what else is going on here? So then Mm -hmm. often there's a need for looking at a bit of relationship work or even, you know, another intervention, something like EMDR, which is right. so powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Having, having a very wide interpretation of that word trauma because really we all have experienced trauma. And yeah. with medication, we're sort of allowing changing the neurotransmitters, which is part of the circuitry, the neural circuitry, the way the nerve cells communicate with each other. So we're providing a greater opportunity for reduced irritability for greater capacity for you know logical thinking creativity so you know the biggest mistake we can make is okay so you've got postnatal depression you take this for six months 12 months whatever and then the postnatal depression will go and then everything will be fine and of course I think you know most parents would really know they sense you know this is a hell of a lot more than (laughs) it's it's a developmental change becoming a parent is another developmental stage I think and having to sort of take into consideration you know the emotional experience of a child of a partner and and oneself requires skills that often lie before children you could get away without having those skills mm-hmm. that's exactly it I think that a lot of times when I work with moms who are struggling with whether it's rage or anxiety or depression you know a lot of these things aren't necessarily new in their life, but they've come Mm. to this crossroads in postpartum because we're just stretched and formed and, you know, and and transformed in ways that we never expected and pushed beyond our capacity in ways that we never could have imagined, right? So um, it's really helpful to have that context. And yes, I, I agree that it brings us to this place where now the skills that may have been there don't serve us anymore. And we need to learn new skills to help manage and, and be within our capacity. And two, maybe things that we thought were healed come up when we reflect on our relationship with our parents as we're parenting. And so there's lots of just sort of layers that happen in the postpartum period. So mindfulness and and therapy being a big component of that and also medication if needed being a, a great tool for that, but definitely a transformation nonetheless. Totally. Yeah. And, and if you can imagine applying, because, you know, we're all so highly motivated as mothers, aren't we, to do our best. Right. <laughs> and so we learn. And, and so all of these principles that we've been talking about today and that are so important for our growing children, because they have such sort of plastic brains, such changeable brains, they're equally applicable for all of our other relationships. And so we can, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of notion that I was taught when I was in medical school a long time ago, that, you know, by the age of sort of somewhere through adolescence, our personality is fixed and unchanged. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. We know right. that's just not true. We know that, again, the neuroscience of trauma has told us we're all made up of multiples. So we have, in a very rough way, we have an angry self, we have a shamed self, we have an insecure self. And in any context, we can imagine how those selves might play out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, using these more contemporary means of training, we can quite literally change our personality, Mm -hmm. quite literally, you know, become someone who's more patient, who can recognize a tricky conversation and will just come attuned, will make eye contact, whereas previously they might have just become disconnected and got caught up in reactivity. I don't know how many times people have told me, you know, two or three years down the track, Diana, actually, this sounds mad, but I'm so glad I came undone. I'm so glad I couldn't cope anymore Mm -hmm. because I'm very different now. And that's fantastic. And that's available to all of us. And that's been my experience. And I kind of joke how with my third and in my postpartum period, I, I often talk on the podcast openly about my experience with postpartum depression after my third, three young children, very close together, yeah. and how uh, it kind of stripped me down to this core, which I feel like I've rebuilt in such like a robust and resilient way now. 
that has been transforming for my life and our family. And then this business has, you know, resulted in this platform as a result. So it's really encouraging to know that when we when we tune into the right skills, we can make these changes in our life. We can break cycles and we can change patterns of behavior rather than just continuing them on through generations. So thank you so much for spending your time here with us today. Where can people find you? Do you hang out online or shall they go to their local bookstore to find you? I found your book, Mindfulness for Moms and Dads, at our Chapters Indigo here in uh, the Toronto area. But where can people find you if they'd like to learn more from you? I don't have a very active, I'm one of these, you know, dinosaurs from past decades. I've not sort of got myself active on the internet, I'm afraid. Yeah. I've got a little website, I am present, or if you look up Dr. Diana Korova, you'll find your way to that website, which has got some resources, some meditations. The book, I just, I just felt really motivated to try and, you know, help parents because I, I really think we can forget fathers in this mm-hmm. situation you know help parents understand it, it is actually a very challenging experience but we can grow it, it can be so precious to mm-hmm. to stumble and try and make sense of things so that was my motivation for writing the book really and we'll link it in the show notes that go with the podcast we'll link your website and we'll link the book on amazon so that people can find it because i love it for its wisdom and knowledge and also like applications and exercises and tools as well. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Erica. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.